0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and I have two guests today, namely...
1: Bruce Williams. Uh, I teach in media studies at the University of Virginia.
0: And... And
2: Michael Dele Carpini, um, Emeritus Professor at the University of Pennsylvania's
0: Annenberg School. And these guys are sort of the Lennon-McCartney of political communication. And one of the challenges for those of us who've read their work over many years is to find out whether it's really co-written, whether each word, each sentence is battled over or whatever it might be. And we're going to find out the truth of that over the next little while today. This is my fantasy. But to begin with, guys, both of whom are friends of mine from many years, of many years, I should say, I wanted to ask you both. What's preoccupying you? What's dynamizing you? What's worrying you? What's exciting you right now?
1: Um, So in thinking about that, I I have kind of two weird answers. And the first is that I think that increasingly we're faced by a series of global level challenges from environmental issues to um, wars in Ukraine and Gaza to uh, attacks on democracy that are linked around the world. And, um, And so these are issues that require kind of a global or some political authority that really, in economic terms, can internalize the externalities that other that that nations are producing and i think we're living at a moment where those international um, political regimes are they were never that strong except in the area of the international monetary fund Um, but they are weaker um than they need to be and i think that it's hard you know, I don't know how we begin to address global challenges without any level of authority or political discussion, even, that has the authority to make decisions at that level. You know, um, and then,
0: sorry, go ahead, Bruce. Yeah.
1: And then just quickly, the second is, I think the main thing is, I still teach first year undergraduates. And I think, teaching 18 and 19 year olds who are smart and they are, you know, they're, they're generally motivated and they remind me of me when I was an undergraduate and their world is so different that it's caught, it, it, it's led me to really rethink how I present myself as a professor in front of these people. So.
0: Before I go to Michael, could I ask you to elaborate a bit on that Bruce or yeah. the challenge to you to Rethink what you can be. I mean, you're not presumably wearing a tutu or tight black jeans.
1: (laughs) That's an idea. But um, uh, so. Coming back from COVID um, and thinking about all that had happened, both to the world, the country and to these students, And the uncertainty, and just really, I mean, I'm not sure anyone has a firm and persuasive uh, way of understanding what's likely to happen over the next, and pick a year, five years, 10 years. And so I had to, you know, tell my, explain to my students why someone as old as me, why they should listen to me. And what I developed is the idea that I thought I was in a good position to give them a sophisticated understanding of how we got to this moment. You know, what are the historical trends that scholars have been studying, that I've been looking at, but past that, the idea of, okay, what now? Or what are the possibilities and what we should be doing? I don't have any more insight and authority about that. I have less than they do because they're the ones that are gonna have to figure that out one way or another.
0: Wonderfully put. Thank you for elaborating on that a bit, Bruce. Michael, I wonder if you might want to comment either on what Bruce has said, Or on this question of where we are, because it was thanks to you and actually Graham Turner, the Australian cultural studies prof, that I've realized as I've gone through the last couple of three months of interviewing people, how often there's an oscillation folks are talking about, especially of our age, of despair and hope in a way that I've never experienced before. And you helped to set that in train for me, actually, Mike.
2: Well, Triller, good to see you again, Toby. And uh, not surprisingly, I agree with everything that I just heard Bruce say. Um, we actually talk uh, once a week via Zoom, um, and much of that conversation is about the kinds of things that uh, that Bruce mentioned. I'll ju- I'll just add um, for me, and it's consistent with your point about oscillation. It, what I think about almost daily is the disconnect between my personal situation, which is great. You know, I'm doing well. I'm healthy at a, a ripe old age of 70. Uh, I recently uh, retired from my position at the university of Pennsylvania, though I'm still keeping my hand in writing and other kinds of um, public interest work. Uh, I, I'm, I'm fine financially. Um, uh, I worry about things like the complete collapse of the Philadelphia Eagles since we talked last Toby. And I was excited about the Eagles. um, They went in the toilet and uh, had horrific end to their season. Uh, But then I look at the world and I follow the world and I talk to a friend who are still teaching at Penn. um, And I know people whose lives are very different. And it's that disconnect between what feels like um, the, the, collapse of lots of aspects of the political and social world combined with the kinds of wicked problems that Bruce just mentioned that make me wonder what kind of a system can actually address if any could actually address these problems it's an odd it's an odd um, uh, situation to be in it makes me realize my position of privilege um, but it also makes me worried about the state of the world and I could constantly try not to be too depressing. Um uh but
0: I but it but I am concerned about that. Well, I very much appreciate your reflexivity there, Michael. Speaking of reflexivity, what Bruce's litany of hell <laughs> made me think of is chaps such as ourselves, and in those days it would have been chaps such as ourselves, mm-hmm. sitting around thinking about the desperate horrors of the first and second world wars thought and the same thinking around the horrors of the Great Depression. And that led to both the failed project of global government slash governance, failed project of Pax Americana, but also the emergence of all sorts of institutions that were, at least initially, relatively apolitical. Uh, Bruce mentioned the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, but one could talk about the International Telecommunications Union. The international postal union which, which was earlier the world health organization which of course has latterly become politicized but the way in which projects of the un including those that became part of the un that had existed before have been fairly successful unless they've been about really impinging on political sovereignty and military sovereignty does that make sense to you guys
1: it makes, it makes sense to me um, because one of the, again, I was in Rwanda right before COVID and um, was looking at how they memorialized the genocide. And um, one of the things that emerged when I read about what had gone on is the reluctance, even in the face of genocide, from the United Nations agreeing to even target the radio stations that were encouraging genocide because it would interfere with whatever Rwanda's, you know, state of autonomy was. And, um, you know, it makes that idea about never again hollow. It just makes it hollow. And
2: even, yeah, I mean, I, Ricky,
0: sorry, Michael, I,
2: go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to add that um, uh, I would put just a grain of salt in the way you put it, Toby, because I'm not sure that even at their best, those agencies and those organ- international organizations were always fully depoliticized, that they, um, you know, anytime any agency or, or unit of government and power act, they're acting on behalf of something, um, and they were challenging certain aspects. They were both um, upholding an international system that didn't benefit everyone, um, I think, if we're honest, um, uh, but they also were acting on behalf of that in ways that ultimately I agree with you were well-intentioned and 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 efficiently functioning for uh, the most part, and I think It's not it's not only when they dealt with politics and state autonomy, but it's also the politicization of them in ways that, you know, they were able to avoid earlier on um, that, I think, makes them problematic. I'll just make one point today. I think uh, the um, the international court decided that it was not going to drop the, uh, the case that was brought by South Africa. Against Israel, regarding whether or not what they're doing approached or should be considered genocidal, uh, they decided that there was enough going on that they were going to continue the investigation. And as part of that, the way this works, which I'm only familiarizing myself with now, uh, they put out six acts or approaches that they are tell you know asking Israel to follow going forward to help reduce the deaths of um, civilians in Gaza, even as the court continues to dis- to decide whether or not they think the acts that have already taken place fall into the category of genocide. It carries no strength. It is very political, obviously, um, uh, and um, uh, it's unclear, although I have my suspicions, whether Israel will take this seriously or not, but it is a, an example, I think, of what Bruce was talking about, where... We have global interest. We are networked globally. It's hard to do anything on important issues that don't involve global action. Um, And yet we don't really have the kind of authority and and institutions in place that can really effectively address those issues in a small-D democratic way. So it's always been complicated, but it's worse now. I'll I'll say that.
1: And so I want to make two points. One is kind of a snarky point. So – Toby, I am shocked that you would use the idea of like depoliticized because it was cultural studies and people like you that taught me as a narrow minded political scientist to really expand the definition of political. And I think that, um, you know, there's a sense in which I agree with you at the level of kind of overt policy and all of that. But, you know, let's think cultural studies about the power embedded. But but more on on something I wanted to pick up on is I think that everything we've been talking about is are they were driven by just what you said at the beginning, by The trauma of the Great of the Depression and then World War II. And I think all you know the 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 gesturing at the need for an international criminal court, the creation of the United Nations, the generation of a statement of human rights, all of that is a product of the Second World War. And I think that I am looking for Stories that we can tell that have purchase across nations, you know, where we can tell stories of collective cooperation. And looking at the way almost every nation and the United Nations responded to COVID, almost every leader referenced the Second World War. Joe Biden did, Donald Trump did. Um, the president, the, the queen of, uh, you know, of uh, Queen Elizabeth, um, uh, even Vladimir Putin, um, Xi Jinping. And so that idea, that historical event, it has purchased worldwide. I mean, everyone, it's central to so many nations' stories of themselves. But what is really interesting is how little attention there is in any of these stories to the global and international dimension of this. We, we tell these stories to glorify our own nation's contribution and what we did. But if you think about what that what a world war is and what it required in terms of international cooperation and sa- and real sacrifice. Um, I think we've lost the potential of using that an experience that around the world people know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But we tell such different stories that I think we've lost the value of that example.
0: Well, my trouble with, say, the Michael Walzer just unjust war bifurcation that people may or may not be familiar with, and which I think is very helpful in lots of ways, you know, a just war is where you've been attacked, you're trying to survive, put crudely. An unjust war is where you're the aggressor and you're seeking to destroy or occupy. I mean, very roughly, it's more subtle than that, is that like so much of US popular culture and British popular culture big time, it's that we once did one good thing. Everything else can be... Problematized, but we won the damn war and that was good because we beat the fascists and we saved people's lives and we saved democracy. And that this is invoked not only at times of say COVID-19, but prior to the invasion of Iraq, hugely, hugely. And so that notion of we are good because we did this one good thing, I think is deeply problematic. Even though there is a a unanimity to the idea that one can hold on to, I am probably, after we finish doing this, going to watch, you know, the new Apple series about the Flyboys of the second world. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, that's OK.
0: Right. And I, I don't know anything about it except that it's there on my television waiting to go. And I imagine I'll probably you know shed a tear or two because I'm easily interpolated by that stuff as I am with anything about the Battle of Britain, you know when I think about fighting against this evil, and then I think <laughs> you know evil, let's start with the British Empire, the most destructive, awful force in human history, just as it happens not over a twelve year period but over hundreds of years. Do you know what i mean so i hear I think I hear what you're saying, Bruce, but I also worry that this can be extrapolated from to justify latter-day imperial attack.
1: And I agree with you about the problem, because I think the way you've described it, that's the way we've told the story of this conflict. But, and one thing I have to go back to Walter, because um, I think one of the, I think the most important distinction he makes is not between just and unjust wars. It's between the reason you go to war, whether it's a just or unjust war, and the way you conduct military operations, no matter what the reason for war is. And I think what we've missed, and watch for it, I'm really looking forward to this new series because one of the first things I wrote getting into this idea of how we remember the Second World War is that it's very clear that both the united states and great britain engaged in what we would call war crimes that they targeted civilians it was on purpose we killed like 120,000 japanese civilians in one night in tokyo and the point is and it's a, i think it's a vital one to get across is that these are different things and i think in the debates we have over gaza today they are hopelessly conflated because the issue of whether israel or Pal- or anyone else whether they are justified in exercising you know military force that's different than how you conduct yourself and i think we don't we haven't confronted that and and we constantly are in this circle of well you know we won the war the people who flew those missions over europe that was about the most dangerous thing you could possibly do in the war those young men were brave beyond imagining but that doesn't mean that they weren't purposefully firebombing civilians and i think you, you see the residue of that in the way discussions about the way war is waged get debated, but we're hopelessly um, unsophisticated, A- and in the way we think about what it means to go to war, what that means.
2: Well, the the thing I'd like to add, since I'm not. Um, quite the student of World War II that uh, certainly Bruce is and that both of you are, is that I think what we're talking about carries over to issues that go beyond the issue of war. That what what I see coming out of what I'm hearing you both say is that, um, and this goes more to some of the other work that I've done not with Bruce, is that we're talking about what what Galley calls um, essentially contested concepts and and it's through pub for any of these topics we have to be constantly we there there's not a right or wrong answer to these things there's they're they're kind of held up by public deliberation and public talk and we need to constantly be talking about examining these objects whether it's a world war or what's going on in gaza and israel right now or immigration policy or the state of higher ed in the united states how you surround a way of thinking about it is through contested discussions about what we think is important and not important in them and that's how these concepts kind of hold up and um and the state of public deliberation really ties to um the state of the communications, information, media environment that we live in right now, which allows discussion to take place in ways that don't move us forward in understanding, don't find commonalities across groups, but tend to do exactly the opposite of that. And I think we've seen that in the way what's going on in the Middle East is being covered. We see that in the way in which the other kinds of policies that we're talking about um, and that Bruce brought up initially are are covered, and it makes it really hard to have the kinds of conversations and come to the kinds of viewpoints that allow for effective action, either domestically or
1: globally. Yeah, just to to add to that, you know, I think that what I've been, you know, you and I have been talking, Toby, about the memory of the Second World War. I it's I think it's connected you know, directly to how we think about removing these statues from the Civil War. I mean, this is about developing a way of criticizing or being critical about the stories that we, that our countries tell about themselves. And, you know, there's something that as an academic, I find invigorating about new approaches to this. Um, The the writing by um, especially gay and bisexual men, if you go back and look at what those men wrote about their experiences in the Second World War, um, it was a time of recognition that for the first time, gay men, they were in an all-male world where they realized they're not the only one. And that, and it blurs the boundaries of whether you are gay, bisexual, straight. And a really good book about the British experience in this is just put by Jake Turner. It's called Men at War, and he he goes through the diaries and the publications of British soldiers right after the war. And just like I found in the United States, it is filled with these new ideas about sexuality and I get so excited about what that means for opening up and being very creative about how we tell those stories and the challenge is to figure out a way to introduce that without having the response of, you know, you're criticizing our troops or you're diminishing the heroism or you're, you know, I think it's, it's necessary, but I don't know how we do it. And I think that leads into what Michael was talking about, about the state of the communications media e- ecosystem now. It, le- it makes that more difficult to do, I think.
0: Just a, picking up quickly on the masculinities issue, yeah. Bruce, which is really important. If you think about the, in a sense, o a text of the Spanish Civil War, All's homage to Catalonia, or farewell to Catalonia, whatever Yeah, called. It's yeah, full yeah. of really horrible stereotypes, particularly of queer men. But then if you read T.C. Worsley's uh, autobiography, Memoir, The Flannel Fool, I'm pretty sure he was an out gay man. And the interesting way in which the gay guys, particularly from the international brigades here in Spain during that war, found common purpose and connection in ways that you would never know from the nasty slights of all. Yeah. Just a quick thing about bombing, and then I'll stop this. One of the people I grew up with, although he was 40 years older than me, but he was like an uncle, was a guy named David Ben Susan Butt, whose father had been, whose mother had been the first woman GP in Britain and also as a Russian emigre Jewish socialist, had sort of helped to found modern-day socialism in the UK. He had been part of Keynes's sort of gay coterie. Yeah. And had done the index to the economic consequences of the peace. During the war, his research was the thing, and this was not his intent, I'm sure, that dynamised the bombing of populations, because in the first months of being able to bomb German territory, the Royal Air Force took lots of high-altitude pictures to try to ascertain whether what they were trying to do, which was to bomb the places that were making material, whether that effort was successful or not. He looked at thousands of these pictures and he said, we can't do it. It's not happening. All these Lancasters with all these bombs that all these people are spending massive amounts of time and money making are achieving nothing. The technology isn't there to be able to pinpoint these places, and even if it were, we don't know for sure what these places are because we don't have human intelligence, right, all of that. This then begets the decision by Churchill and others, let's bomb the population because look what they're doing to us. And one little story, little anecdote to, to... picture this is about somebody who's known in british mythology as bomber harris who was head of bomber command but known to those who work with him as butcher harris because he would gleefully look at the stats on the number of in inverted commas innocent german citizens killed in any given night and the famous anecdote is when his driver is racing him home from the office at four in the morning when they've got the numbers in A policeman pulls them over. You may know this story, Bruce. Policeman pulls them over and says in a rebuke to the driver, you could have killed somebody. And bomber (laughs) says, my boy, you've no idea how many people I've killed tonight. And this is the sort of story that circulates. And some of it is in shock and horror, and some of it is in, ha-ha, we got them. And so I do think you're right, Bruce, in saying that understanding the mechanisms whereby you move from condemnation or not of the initial engagement through to what the actual rules and norms of engagement are is tremendously important. And the kind of debate you get about whether or not after the firebombing of Tokyo, after the horrors of Dresden... Hiroshima and Nagasaki were actually of any use whatsoever other than as deterrence and threats, right? Right. So I do think that is really, really important. But anyway, I thought you might be interested in this this sort of story of how this logic yep. of bombing people, when the British and the and its soon to be allies claimed not to want yep. to do that, came to pass through this But report, which one actually can read online. Yeah, the impossibility of targeting munitions. Factory.
1: Because there's a whole book that was written about actually the photographic unit Uh in Britain that had to develop the cameras that could actually accurately capture that. And I think the report you're referring to, it's like, you know, only one out of, you know, 10,000 bombs fell within 10 miles of their target. But to go back, I think it's related, um, is if we go back to the question of sexuality. Um, One of the things that, and I was, again, I mentioned that book by Jake Turner because he finds the same thing in Britain that I found when I was looking in the United States. And that is when you look at what veterans wrote right after the war, and this is from novelists like James Jones and Norman Mailer to diaries and things like that. They are filled with discussions of, you know, obviously things like prostitution. Fears about venereal disease, but also a common theme is this idea of the challenge to heteronormativity, however, and but in some of the research I've done, I I went and looked in the in the archives in Beverly Hills of the movies that were made out of these books, like From Here to Eternity or the couple of remakes of uh, The Naked and the Dead. Uh, several other movies. But what you find is that those scenes, they were never going to make it onto a screen. You know, and I even looked at some of the, you know, Fred Zinneman directed uh, From Here to Eternity. I I got his his first edition copy of um, From Here to Eternity with all his markings in it. And He was clearly, you know, he highlighted all the um, scenes that referred to homosexuality and discussions about sex. Um, But you could tell he was not going to fight for them because it was hard enough to present the idea that Donna Reed—you had to; she was she wasn't really a prostitute, even though she was in the book and. And my point here is, is that I think when we think about the story that we tell today about that war, it's shaped not by the veterans, not by the actual experience of soldiers coming back from this world-changing event. It is what happens when those memories get you know, funneled through, the business of uh you know the the production code administration and 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 things about what americans can and cannot handle and so you know i don't know how helpful that is today but the very stories are you know they did, it's not like they emerged organically from the experience of the war Our memories are shaped by the films and television shows that are, many of them are still shown.
0: And Michael, I wonder if I could bring you in here, because what I sense is part of your lamentation for the contemporary connects to this possibility of a mythic or real past, which is a nostalgia for a common culture of some sort albeit a problematic one in terms of gender and race and lots of other elements. But, Michael, is there a time when there you felt as though there was such a common culture that you could ascribe to or connect to or be part of? And what was it? Yeah, not in
2: any systematic way, Toby, when I'm honest with myself. I mean, I think there are moments, but even as that happens, those moments become... Uh, Quickly become problematic. So, I mean, what what am I talking about? Um, when I think about in the world in the po- world of politics, I think about a brief moment after the nine eleven attacks in the United States, where there was a feeling of unity in the United States that had elements, you know, put aside the very quickly emerging elements of Islamophobia and revenge but that were about, um, even though New York will often have a bad reputation within the United States, the rallying around the city, um, the stories of individuals, individual acts of bravery um, by first responders in New York all the way to people from other parts of the country and the globe reaching out and trying to help in any way they could. Um, statements of uh, support and sympathy and empathy from nations around the globe who might also have real um, uh, disagreements with what um, what the United States was doing and stood for. So brief moments like that at a more individual level, being a resident of Philadelphia in 2008 when the Philadelphia Phillies won um, the World Series of Baseball. Uh, World Series being a misnomer, but um, the wor- the World Series of baseball and that feeling of unity across class and race and even gender that um, that you momentarily have where you feel like you have something in common. I mean, what I would what I add to this conversation because I'm thinking about your the points we're raising about how do you have which I take to be how do you have honest collective and individual memories that are relatively unvarnished and and have different points of view associated with them and no clear good guys and bad guys much more gray and complicated and yet maintain a sense of we're in this together and we have some some things in common that rise above these disagreements that we have and This is a bit simplistic, but for me, what I turn to to continue the sports metaphors um, is sports. Um, For me, it's baseball. Um, It it, it works for other sports as well, I think, is what does it mean to be a baseball fan in the United States? To be loyal to a team like for me, the Philadelphia Phillies, for Bruce, the New York Mets. And when I think about what that that looks like... um, it's got a lot of elements of what I think being a, um, a citizen should look like. So what does that entail? It, you're, you're surprisingly informed, right? You know the players, you know their statistics, you know what their record is. You know how they've done in the past. You know how they're doing now. Um, you can have very strong feelings about both the individual about individual players, whether they should or should not remain on the team. Whether they're performing the way they should, but that does not shake your loyalty to the organization, to the team. Um, you can have, you know, a drawn-out debate with fellow fans about who's who's having a good year, who's the best player, um, that are that are based both on actual, you know, statistical measures of performance, but are also based on the personality of the players and kind of intangibles which we call in in sports as to whether someone's contributing or not um you can um uh you can dislike the other teams bruce and i will go on forever about our dislike for each other's favorite teams in baseball the mets and the phillies are our rival east coast rivals in the same division and in the same league uh but you don't really hate them um you just uh you 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 dislike what they're doing you dislike their competitive advantages um there is a a kind of a again something of a of a, a of a, a narrative that's not 100 percent true about what it means to be a sport a good sports fan that to me has parallels as to what it would mean to be a good uh national or local or global citizen you know, if we could be as good at that as we uh, in politics as we are in sports, as committed to it, as informed about it, um, as passionate about it, um, but also as ultimately as um, uh, uh, civil in a strange kind of way about it, uh, I think that works really well for politics as well. So it, to
1: pick up on that, I want to make three, not two, not four, three points, Um and what i think about is the absence of media uh forms that allow those kinds of like collective broader groups to have internal disagreements and and really build just what you're talking about this sense of community for want of a better word. And I think the, the the second point is, if you look at social media and the internet, one of the things that I was struck by is that at a time where I'm saying I think there are these global issues that require kind of really collective thinking. Um, we have a, a, a you know a media system that because of the way it is financed and unregulated that it is dramatically individualistic it leads away from collective action and cooperation it emphasizes the idea that we are all in it to become the biggest influencer we can and and um so i think and the third point is, thinking back to our book, I think one of the things that we got right is what it meant when you didn't have the nightly news. What that meant. Not that the nightly news was a good thing or it didn't deserve all the criticisms that you know we made of it, but the idea that every night you know, like 80 or 85 percent of every American with a television is watching the same 30-minute news broadcast. And I think we got right that, you know, it's really serious when you eliminate that. And, And I think that what we got really wrong is the problem that we have today, which is we ha- there hasn't been any, I think, revision in how we teach kids, you know, how we educate citizens to be able to deal with this radically decentered uh media system. And then I guess it is four, because there's a fourth thing here, is that I think. Education, you know, the institution that we have spent, the institution we've spent our lives in, they're the place where these stories get told one way or another. And I think the idea that the challenge to educate students to understand your the stories you tell, the history, they are alive, they're dynamic. When new people talk about them, you get a different perspective. And that's all what it means to be an active, educated citizen in a democratic society. And so I think all of these trends, they were so sped up by Trump and COVID that you know, it seems it, it's very hard to think about where you start to remedy some of this. And so, that's what I leave to my students.
0: This is where I'd like us to hone in for a moment, at least if we may, on the book that Bruce mentions, which is a wonderful monograph that you guys wrote. that came out in, I think, 2011.
1: Something like that. 2011 after, or 2012. Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
0: Sorry, Michael.
2: Uh, yeah, it, it was 2011 or 2012, and it's uh, yeah. you were about to say it's called yeah. After Broadcast News. That's right. Yes.
0: So could you tell us a little bit about that, bearing in mind that the plurality of the audience for this is in the United States, but not the majority? Yeah. So when I say when Walter Cronkite turned against the Vietnam War, that was it. I need to explain to people you know, who the heck Walter Cronkite was.
2: Yes. yeah so uh, i'll i'll take a first shot at it but bruce you can uh, or at yep. least the, the initial work so so the basic argument of the book which fo- does focus on the united states in its specificity but i think has uh, uh parallels or at least lessons uh, more globally than that is that um in the late beginning in the you could cut it off at different places but in the 19 late 1980s through the 1990s there was a major shift in the way in which people communicated with each other and um, uh, also got information about the public world that was being driven but not caused by um, uh, technology changes along with a whole series of cultural and political and economic changes that were taking place and that that change was taking place without there being a clear understanding of what the rules of the game used to be and how they were changing and what the rules of the game in terms of the information environment and the role of citizens uh were um without there being a new set of rules if you will and we in in a uh kind of 10,000-mile overview of media history in the United States, argue a couple of things. One is that um, these moments or these periods in which what the role of the media was, what the role of citizens were, and what the role of uh, political elites were, and how they interacted with each other, that there have been a number of different models for that in the United States, and we call these media regimes. And we borrowed, Toby, from your work about um, how uh, there needs to be almost a collusion. I think that's the word that you use in your work between citizens and elites in the media, where we're all, even if we're um, doing this tacitly, we're all in agreement as to what our individual roles are. And in the United States, the period leading up to this new technology that eventually becomes the Internet and social media, and the World Wide Web and so on, that the um uh that the changes that were taking place were coming on the heels of this relatively stable period that bruce alluded to which we call the age of broadcast media in which citizens were largely expected to do two things watch the news read the news and um and vote in which political elites were in theory supposed to respond to citizens voting and had an interaction with the media that was both trying to influence what the, how, the, how they were portrayed in the media, uh, but also respond to the media's representation of the public interest, um, and um, that uh, the media's job was to basically make money and entertain us for most of the time, and now we're thinking mostly about broadcast media, but for several hours during the day to be the public interest Presenter of information, uh, and they decided what it was valuable for citizens to know and what it was val- and what was irrelevant for citizens to know. Um, and and Bruce, you want to pick? It, you look like you have something that you want to say. You want to pick it up or add to that? Yeah,
1: because I I think in the idea of regimes is what we were arguing in uh, twenty eleven was that. That broadcast, what we were calling the age of broadcast news, that that regime, for a lot of different reasons, it had collapsed. It, but one of the, um, the issues, and Lance Bennett was one of our editors, and, um, one of the, the questions he asked us about the manuscript is we seem to be arguing that this is a repeating process, that once you get this disruption, that there's a period of disruption, and then you get a new kind of regime. And Lance's question was, what if what if that doesn't happen? You know, what if it continues to be just kind of anarchic? And I remember Michael and I not having a good answer to that. But one of the things that is alarming, I think, is that looking at it from 2023, That regime is in place. That regime has emerged. And it's a model of unregulated media that is controlled by, you know, uh, people like, you know, that are our equivalent of the robber barons. Um, And because this disruption happened at a time... When neoliberalism was in ascendancy, the idea that when you have this new media emerging, it requires government regulation, that was not in the political discourse. And so we have a regime, a media regime now that is not at all dedicated to the kinds of things that Michael was talking about, that the news was a, you know, news divisions all of that jet was supposed to do. And there's very, you know, we're old, we are all old enough to remember like the John Perry Barlow promises about what this new world would be. And, And there was a moment where everyone said, well, you know maybe you can't make money off the internet. You know, how are we, you know, what is the business model here? But we're at the other end that we're all there is, is the business model. And I think, you know, um, it's so this regime, it, it's it's hard to know where you begin to effectively attack it. I mean, it's easy to stand up and point to these things. But where is the effective political um energy and will to do something about it when, you know, it's Barack Obama who is the first candidate to really use the data gathering potential of, you know, of surveillance media to run his campaign. And uh, Eric Schmidt was one of his top advisors. So, you know, I I think we're in this place where it's time to I I guess all I want to you know say is we need to understand that and and how you intervene in that and I have no idea about that.
2: And I think the thing I'd add um, uh, to what Bruce just said is that this new so this idea just to be clear to the to the listener this idea of a media regime again is that us. Uh, you get to a point where there are kind of new rules uh, to the road and they become sort of what we anticipate, they become naturalized. Toby, to use some of the work that you've done. Uh, And that naturalization is such that we think this is normal. We think this is the way things have always operated. We think this is the way things are, should operate, even though there's a lot of consternation right now um i i'm thinking this through as i speak just look talking to the two of you but but what's what's kind of been formalized in this new regime is ownership models who's in control the dominance of a market mentality um i'm not sure what the role of the citizen is has been normalized in the same way that it was in previous periods and so mm-hmm citizens, you know, what we're supposed to do as individuals is still, I think, very unclear and very much up for grabs. Uh, And so you've got this weird combination of a stable regime at the level of who who provides this information and what the economic structures look like and the dominance now, um, the, the, the fading of the role of governments and the increased role not of news organizations, but of uh, internet providers and uh, the Googles and TikToks and Facebooks of the world are, you know, loosely speaking, the ones that now control this system. Um, but there is no place in that for understanding other than we are as individuals, we are consumers and we are individual producers of information in this environment. You know, some of whom will catch fire and some of whom will never be heard. Um, But it's chaotic at the level of the what's being said and what's uh, and, and who's saying it at the same time that it's incredibly stable at the level of who benefits from it. And it's as much as I continue to believe that this the technology in the right political and economic and cultural environment is the most democratic technology we've ever had, its actual use is dominated by very um, anti-democratic tendencies.
1: So if if I could just pick up on that a little, I I think about my students here. And one of the things that I have learned um, is that, I don't know, you know, before COVID, um, I can remember, you know, basically railing against my students reliance on their smartphones and their computers and doing all this stuff no you can't have them in class and all of this sort of stuff but it was only later on that I realized that my students they are perhaps more frustrated and upset that this is their world they are not Happy about it that they're not happy about the idea that they they sort of have to pay attention to their smartphone you know nine thousand times a day, and I think it's very clear to me that you know the way to teach these students is not to make a moral claim, but to understand it's it's like an addiction model. It's it, you know you don't if you're trying to get heroin addicts to stop. Taking heroin, you don't, you know, preach to them about the evils of heroin. They know all about that. My students, you know, nothing that I can tell them about surveillance and data and all that is particularly surprising. What they want to know, like the heroin addict, is how do I kick this? How do I stop being addicted to heroin? And I, and so I think there's this... Um, I don't know, Uh, if there was a politically effective way to tap into that, then, you know, social movements around this might be possible. But the media itself that we all use, it leads away from that. And I think the idea of citizenship, I mean, it doesn't, it's, I think it's implied that there really isn't a contradiction between being a citizen and being a consumer. I think it's all the same thing. I look at my phone, I see what is directed at me and I decide whether I'm going to buy it. Is it Trump or Biden or is it, you know, the latest, um, you know, uh, running shoes?
0: One of the things that occurs to me is in this is to ponder two issues. One is, Going back to Herbert Gantz's work, and not just in the 70s, looking at how newsrooms were organized, but that he updated 30 years later to look at the way in which, for want of a better term, to use an ugly expression, groupthink applies so much in traditional US mainstream journalistic reportage of the economy and war. And Gantz points this out brilliantly, I think, Really, extraordinarily, and all of that is before much of this transformation occurs, yeah. and it was shockingly awful. And then the other thing I'd say is that one of the big changes for me is not about technology; it is about ownership, although that relates to hmm. technology and the the death of local newspapers yeah. in the United States. And here I think of you know our old friend Jim Carrey and. Yeah the fact that one of the reasons probably why journalists are not trusted as they once were is that in the old days, people knew journalists. Mm. There was a local beat. It was in your town. It was in your neighborhood. And if you went to bars or cafes or PTA meetings, parent-teacher association, you met these people. If you, went, if you participated in some way in local or municipal government, you knew these people. All of that's been destroyed or it's in the process of being destroyed in the United States as hedge funds and other corporate raiders move in to media properties, buy them and strip them of their assets. Now, the old style model of paternalistic media owners allegedly operating in the public interest was deeply flawed, but not like this one is. Right. I wonder if you guys might reflect on that.
1: So just quickly, when I was in Gainesville, um, so the local newspaper, they had been bought by the USA Today chain, whoever owns them now. And one of, you know, and they made the usual changes that we're all aware of, where there's much more kind of news that's from the chain and, and And they've cut back on local reporting. But what they did at a moment where, you know, what's going on at the University of Florida is unbelievably uh, controversial, let's say, they eliminated the editorial page. The Gainesville Sun doesn't have an editorial page anymore. And that means, on the one hand, you know, you don't get columnists and stuff. But if you think about letters to the editor. The idea that uh, that someone reading that newspaper, maybe, you know, the seven old people or, you know, or online, when they see coverage of something that's happening in their community right now that everyone is aware of, and the newspaper covers it in a particular way, there's no way of expressing your support or opposition to that. And to me... I hadn't thought about that in that way, because that's cutting another opportunity for people in a community with a sense of collective ownership of this university in this community. It's taken this, this possibility away at a moment where it's probably needed more than ever. And I think you know, it was very dramatic in Gainesville because of what's been happening. But as you're pointing out, that's everywhere.
2: Yeah, I'll just add, um, I think, again, I, I I agree both with that as an example of one of the problems in the current media environment that you mentioned, Toby, and with uh, Bruce's uh, kind of elaboration on that. I'll just add a couple of things. First of all, as a tangent, Rod Hart has a great Book on yes. understanding public opinion through letters to the editors. That looks. So I was going to mention. Yeah, thanks. So yeah. I think that's if it's a great uh, discussion of this topic. Yeah. Secondly, I'll think I'll say that that the, that the example you gave of the 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 lack of direct interaction at the local level with journalists, you could carry that out layer upon layer. That because um, we've been talking about this idea of a global community and the fact the problems have been globalized there's no i mean there's no, it's not even physically imaginable other than through media to to what does it mean for me to care about um what's going on in the middle east both the palestinians and the israeli's civilians who have been killed when i have no direct contact with that i mean and yet i feel like somehow i should be part of that global community so it's a it's a it's a problem that begins to feel existential to me, even if you even if we could succeed at creating these environments, recreating these environments at the local level. The the issues that we face with are not always local. And so what is what does that mean for all this? And then the where I think those two things come together is your notion that I think you first brought up, Toby, of trust. I mean, what does it mean to have trust in individuals and institutions in a globalized society i mean i know what it means for me to to trust you toby or to trust you bruce because we know each other we're friends in addition to being colleagues i know what it means even i can imagine what it would mean to trust the local media um but um to trust local government and local politicians but most of what i trust now uh when it comes to politics is to trust institutions with which I have maybe a his a mediated history, but not a personal history with. Um, and so that's, I, I feel like if there's an area of, of, of work that I'd like to move into, it's understanding we have really kind of, um, not great notions of political trust, but, but this notion of trust seems to me increasingly important, in the world that we live in right now. And I think we under-theorize and understudy what we mean by that. Yeah.
0: Well, guys, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. And I want to finish my, maybe have one more glass of wine before going to bed. But I did have a couple more questions for you, if I may, before throwing it open to you guys to add to or subtract from, or to ask me about, you know, the index to the economic consequences of the peace a topic all too rarely discussed, I find. And the first question is, you have been writing together for a very long time and rarely, if ever, living in the same city, I think.
2: Never, I don't think, since well, graduate Well, when school. we were in graduate school, yeah, that's yeah. when we first met. So we spent, yeah. and, and, and Bruce was a year or two ahead of me, so maybe two years, maybe three years in our... Yeah. 50 year relationship yeah and if you
1: remember because that was right after the civil war had ended right. <laughs> you know it was very uncertain yeah
0: yeah listen one of the things bruce when i moved here was i'd always said to people in the united states the civil war never ended here it's not only the spanish civil war never ended the fucking oh. Inquisition never ended. yeah <laughs> in any event well li- yeah Um, What I wanted to ask you guys was during that time of writing together, thinking together, communicating, technology of communication has changed a lot. You just said that once a week you're gossiping about the Phillies versus the Mets. And I want to throw in the Dodgers and the Yankees there, of course. But (laughs) (laughs) who do you hate more, Bruce? Is it a National League rival or the Bombers? The Bronx. Okay,
1: so we Michael and I've actually discussed this and it's very clear. I hate the Phillies much more than the Yankees because we have to play them every year (laughs) and beat them, you know. So, yeah.
0: In any event, I wondered what your writing relationship is like getting back to my earlier conceit about and McCartney and how that might have changed with newer technological forms of interaction as writers over the years.
2: Uh, you want to take but, a shot, Bruce? Or
1: Yeah, my first shot is um, we would – my memory of it, and correct me if my memory is wrong or yours is wrong, but you're going to insist it's right. Um, <laughs> I
0: think now, that we – This is not the end of the Beatles, all right?
1: Right. It is,
0: right. John and Paul love yeah. one another. John, right. is be, John is dead, but Paul can now love him yeah. again,
1: okay? Yeah. So um, – We used to take responsibility for writing like different parts of whatever we were writing. But even though we lived in different cities, the real writing part was when we would get together and spend, you know, a weekend or, you know, four or five days. And that involved sitting, drinking lots and lots of coffee all day long and then reading out loud and laughing at how awful our writing was reading out loud what we had written and i can remember again and again we would just stop and say how could we have written that it it's 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 not grammatical it doesn't make sense and in that process i think is how we kind of worked with each other and i think that um it would be well it would, i think it might i don't know whether it'd be easier or harder to do that sort of thing now uh, but you know that for me that was the real like co-authoring part of it i don't know what you think about it. yeah that, no
2: i think that captures a lot of it i mean i'll say a couple of other things one is the idea genesis, you know, before you were even writing, before you even know exactly what you're going to say, yeah. but beginning to think about what are the issues and the topics that you want to write and how to think about it. I mean, that all happened face-to-face. Um, yeah, It was, uh, and it was, you know, through not unlike the Zoom calls that Bruce and I have now, except they were in person and maybe at a bar in the evening, uh, maybe just sitting around having coffee, as Bruce mentioned. But I can remember, I think, the first, first inkling that we would write something together on, that turned out to be this book um, which was a number of years before it was actually finished I think I might even still have somewhere you might Bruce it was written on a napkin You know, a, the a, napkin I
1: was yeah, going to yeah, ask about that either, either I, a, yes. or, yeah, boys you know, boys or,
0: yeah. hold it this is Nixon okaying the coup in Chile please right.
2: yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um and then I'll say the other thing you know because I've written with fair number of co-authors, and only twice this experience working with Bruce being one of them, we did do what Bruce said, which is once we began to sh- outline and shape what we thought we were going to do, gonna do, we took responsibility for uh, being the first um, draft writer of a particular section or a particular topic, and we built on each other's strengths. Bruce is much more of an avid reader and a historian, and so he um, he did a lot of the first drafts of those pieces. I did some of the more um, kind of one of uh, the bringing in some empirical data and uh, right. kind of talking about the um, the technology and its effects and theoretically what we think the implications of that might be. But that was the least interesting part because, as Bruce said, a lot of it wound up never you know changing so much. It was the the going over it together that Bruce described, where I think it's fair to say that. I can certainly point to sections that Bruce wrote that are in the book now or that took the lead on or that I did took the lead on. But there's not a sentence in that book that we didn't fight over, you know, in a good way, in an absolutely good way, you know, both for the craft of writing and for what we were trying to say. And in terms of the current environment, I actually don't think there's anything about the current environment that necessarily works against doing that. And and the technology is helpful. Even during the time we were writing – this the technology improved for sharing drafts with each other right um and so i think the technology is actually helpful but it doesn't it neither is necessary nor sufficient for having a good experience co-authoring and i think the book to the extent that it's got some useful things in it i think it's better Uh, than what either one of us could have done individually. And I think that's what makes for a good collaborative experience, is if you can say that about it, um, then I think it's been a good experience. And I've had the opposite experience, where basically it's co-authored, but it's really different voices working on different pieces, contributing different pieces, and the final result is, is still interesting and good, but it's nothing more than the pasting together, Rather yeah. than the actual intellectual experience of 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 coming uh, from coming up with the idea of completing the work, that makes it um, neither mine nor Bruce's, but the but only the two of us.
1: Uh, yeah. And the only thing I would add to that is you use the word "there wasn't a sentence that we didn't fight over." I think I don't. I can't remember us fighting over a single sentence. What I can remember is us laughing (laughs) about how how poorly a sentence worked, but I think in the end, it was that this was both our product. So it wasn't like, oh man, you know, I need to get this in and, and Michael, you just are gonna have to eat this, you know. It was we had a shared vision and when the two of us were together, I think it was the best kind of editing. Yeah. And what I will add is if you haven't already seen it, you should see the documentary turn every page because it's about the relationship between, and I'm not comparing, you already compared <laughs> us to Lennon and McCarthy. So I'm not gonna call us like Robert Cairo. But if you if you see that documentary, you see this long-term editing relationship between Cairo and Robert Gottlieb. And when they got together, they wouldn't let anyone else in the room with them as they went over each line with a pencil. And, you know, later on they said, you know, they could argue an hour over a semicolon. And, And I think that... To me, it was such an ideal kind of way of producing a kind of scholarship that, sadly, I don't think you can produce a Robert Cairo again. I, I just don't see it.
0: And he's spoken about how once, I think, Gottlieb died, it became harder for him.
1: I bet. I bet. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'll add just one other thing that technology make it easier today and did towards the end of us writing this book is the ability to search for words because um, we would write things. And then there'd be a moment where we'd say, didn't we say that before? Uh, And then we'd have to go through the, the uh, the word document or the, or the word star document maybe when we started um, and try to find where we've talked about something to see. Number one, was it consistent with what we said earlier? And number two, did we actually say the same thing? We don't need to say it here, and that'd be a lot easier to deal with now. I mean, it was a it was it was what I hoped being a scholar and an academic would be yeah. the experience of doing it because it was really I learned as much just on the process as anything that exactly. we actually actually produced. Yeah. And it helps that we're friends, uh because yeah. that's hard to do with someone you don't know
0: very well. Or don't like.
2: Or don't like, even worse, yeah.
0: Or come not to like. So my last question before I throw it to you guys, as I said, to subtract anything or add anything you might wish, is to say to you, I'm uh, 24, I'm a political science or communications or in Bruce's case, now media studies, doctoral student, right? But all of you, I mean, both of you, I should say, cut your teeth in political science and then moved into this communications field. I've turned up at your offices. I've got a topic. Forget what it is for the moment. And I want to know how I start researching. What's the answer?
2: I mean, I'll say read, read, read. Um, I think, and I was guilty about, I still can be guilty of this. You if you if there's something that or or a topic, a problem, an issue, an area that you want to study, you're almost it's almost always generated by from some personal experience or something that you have read. But that's just the start. It really, really helps to become a master once you know what that area is to become a master of the literature as much as that's possible, because um, other people before you. If it's an important topic, there's almost certainly other people before you that you're not aware of who have written and thought about the topic and understanding what it is that they have to say and how they said it and what they conclude and how they studied it in terms of methodology is really, really important. And sometimes that feels like wasted time. You want to start actually writing, but mastering the topic um, uh by understanding what's been said before you was, is, is I think, the crucial first step in my in my mind.
1: Um, I, I I agree with that. I I I think that one of the things that Jim Carrey wrote, and aside from everything else, I thought that Jim Carrey I admired him as a writer more than almost anybody else in the field because. When you read what he wrote, you could hear him. You could, he had the most distinctive voice in his writing, where if you knew him and listened to how he spoke, you could hear that in his writing. And I just admired that. And one of the things he said was that everything you read, you don't understand unless you understand who, is it, who it is in conversation with who is the author responding to what, you know, a, and you have to expand out your understanding in that way. And I think it was, you know, it, it was instructive for me when he would point to people like, um, you know, Walter Lippmann and, and Theodore Momson, and, you know, all these people who were in conversation. I think what we, what we don't, have enough of it is understanding that even in a journal article even you know and they're so formulaic with literature views and stuff there is always a conversation this is addressing some bigger issue and i think it's understanding the broader context before you get narrowed to the point where you have a piece of research that's actually doable. I think it's important to keep remembering why this is important.
0: I absolutely agree with that. I think it's really significant and especially with the kinds of deadlines and norms in general that governments and universities are increasingly imposing on young people around the world such that learning how to behave Properly is actually required. And what this leads to is an unnecessary obeisance because you start obeying things that are deemed to be holy writ, but five minutes later have been dumped by the state or the university. And you lose track of what your passion was in the first place. Yeah. Right. Which is why you want to read or whom you want to be in dialogue with. And I guess the other thing I'd say about Jim Carey, and this isn't the Canadian actor, needless to say, for those who don't know, but James W. Carey, is that Jim's great contribution for me is that every bloody thing he wrote made me think and think far beyond what he had to say. You know, it it is extraordinary. Anyway, um, to conclude, wanted to give you guys the chance, as I said, to finish us off with pointing us in, another direction or revisiting anything that we've touched
2: on. Uh, I'll jump in. Um, I, I, I'm hyper-conscious of the degree to which when I think about and talk about the kind of things we did today, Toby, or when I was on your podcast earlier, that there is a kind of gloom to, to the way we talk, I talk about the. I'll talk, speak just for myself um i don't know how much of that is because i'm older i don't know how much of that is because of the state of the world but i just think that it's important to understand that um that there is still possible there are still possibilities um that uh that you know we may be i may be kind of handing the baton to to younger people on how we think about or write about or act in the political and social world but um but I don't want to leave the impression that we're screwed. You know, I think things are bad, but I do think that I am not the one who should be saying, so what should be done? I might be able to give some thoughts and advice from past experience, but to go to Bruce's point about his teaching, I mean, I think um, it would be a shame if all that's taken away from these kinds of discussions is, well, we're all we're all fucked. Um, You know, I think I think um, there are possibilities that go beyond my own imagination that I think uh, others will be able to hopefully address the fight. The fight continues. I'll, I'll leave it at that.
1: Yeah. The last lecture that I give in as many classes as I can squeeze it into is it's always entitled Never Let an Existential Crisis Go to Waste. And it's the idea that this is a unstable moment that was uh, accelerated and whatever by contingent events. And it means the future is not written and I'm not going to write it. It's going to be them. And then I'm sorry, but the last thing, because it's on my mind almost all the time is The growing, um, I think, humility that a lot of folks have about how we have understood human beings as a species and how we have understood what human intelligence and rationality is and how that's all been celebrated. And I am an avid reader of all of these biologists and, and, and folks like that that are beginning to show that, well, there are a lot of species that are, if you talk about evolution, are a lot smarter than we are because they have survived and adjusted over millennia. And it may be that as a top apex species, we're not gonna have that long a run. And that's very, very depressing unless you understand the world it opens up about seeing the world around you very differently. And I had to throw that in.
0: Thank you both very, very much. Over the many years of our friendship and acquaintance, I've always learned things in conversation with you, both and always from reading your writings, both singly and collectively. And today's been far from a disappointment in terms of adding to that store of knowledge that you so generously provide the rest of us. So thank you both very much, Bruce. Thank you, Toby. Keep up the good work with these podcasts. Right back
2: at you, Toby.